This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the very first World Shared Practice event on Open Pediatrics. We are excited to have so many members of our global community joining us in the celebration of World Sepsis Day. We look forward to your active participation in this video. The Burden of Sepsis in Children by Dr. Tex Kassoon. Hello, hi, I'm Tex Kassoon. I'm the president of the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies. And today I am going to speak to you on uh, the issue of sepsis in children. I hope this, to be a, this uh, should be a very um, interactive session. And what I'd like to do is really frame the issues for you. But uh, during this talk, there are certain times I will be asking you uh, some questions and asking your opinion and advice, because I think this is a broad enough topic that at different uh, parts of the world, there will be different issues. And it's only you as the, those who work in those areas will be able to um, advise us um, as to what the issues are and uh, hence the solutions. So what I'd like to do in the next uh, half an hour to 45 minutes is talk to you a little about the enormity of the burden and then uh, discuss some issues. Um, are we making inroads in prevention, time-sensitive treatment? Uh, I would like to discuss some of the issues in resource-limited environments, mainly because that is one of the major issues um, that we face in providing care. Because there are times even we know what works, we cannot provide it because of the uh, issues we face in delivery. I would like to talk a little about recurrences um, of sepsis and then have some concluding remarks. Now, many of you may have seen this um, diagram, but this really gives us a very good idea as to the burden of sepsis in children. If you look at the under five population, many of the diseases that uh, uh, cause mortality, diarrheal diseases, acute respiratory infections, malaria, measles, uh, other parasitic infections, and even in the neonatal deaths, the one third of deaths that are neonates, uh, uh, many of those, uh, uh, almost a quarter or more, are also diarrheal disease neonatal infections. So therefore, if we look at the uh, children under five, including neonates who die, about 70% of the deaths are related to infection and sepsis is the final common pathway to death and disability in all these children. So therefore, it's an enormous burden, burden in children. And one of the issues that um, makes it even uh, more stark to us, if we look at this slide, um, the upper part shows wealth of nations. And one can see that Europe, North America, Japan, um, the wealth is represented in the, in the, in the area of the landmass. And you can see the countries which in which there is a lot of wealth. If you look at Asia, the India, for say, um, the landmass is very small, representing smaller wealth. And when you look at Africa, one can see that the wealth in Africa is concentrated in southern Africa, usually South Africa. Now, while in the last uh, few years there have been seismic shifts in wealth and uh, uh, stock markets and um, across the world and economies across the world, I can assure you that the countries that were poor has not gotten any wealthier, and indeed the 
proportions may be just the same. If we look at under five deaths, the um, bottom half of the map, one can see that North America almost disappears. So most of the death, North America, South America disappears. Most of the deaths uh, occur in the areas with the limited resources. For instance, Africa, one can see, and um, Asia, Europe also um, almost disappears. So there is this uh, uh, difference in a, a, a reciprocal arrangement between resources and um, under five mortality. And while that is not the only issue that we face, it is one of the issues that uh, poverty plays a big role in, uh, in uh, the uh, outcomes from sepsis. Now, one of the things that we have to um, be aware of is the fact that we cannot separate uh, the issue of maternal mortality from children mortality. And sepsis is recognized as a common cause of maternal deaths. In fact, about 15% or more of all maternal deaths are due to sepsis. And uh, many have said that this is an underestimate. Well, why is it uh, important that we talk about maternal and uh, um, um, pediatric or uh, children's uh, uh, deaths together is the fact that it is well recognized that poor maternal health re, uh, impacts on survival rate in children. In fact, among infants who survive the, the, the death of the mother, only 10% lives beyond the first year. And the death of a mother is likely to be followed by death of approximately 50% of her uh, children who are under five years of age. Now, sepsis is even a may, uh, greater problem in the developing world. Um, in fact, the estimates have said that about 20 to 30 million cases per year of sepsis in the developing world. The highest risk is again among women and children. And the issue is that not only is bacterial sepsis a problem, but bacterial sepsis mostly uh, we see it in the developed world, but there are also other forms of sepsis, malaria, dengue fever, viral infections, HIV, TB, and nosocomial infections is a major problem, especially in the crowded conditions that you see in many of the uh, uh, hospitals and clinics in the developing world. So in summary, uh, the issue of sepsis is an enormous burden and I think many of you across the world would recognize it as such, more so in those areas with limited resources. So sepsis plays a, a major burden worldwide. It affects children um, from all countries. But what I'd like to do is take a minute here and um, get your input into what are the other causes of sepsis in your area. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Now, so let us go on. What I'd like to do now is talk a little about how we make an inroads in treatment of sepsis. I think that um, there are areas that we can, we have made great inroads. The incidence of sepsis has decreased in the uh, last few years and outcomes have been a little better, more so in the developed world. But there's much more that we can do um, to um, improve outcomes from sepsis. Um, many of you may remember the issue of prevention, that prevention is one of the major um, uh, sort of uh, weapons we have against sepsis. And in fact, prevention is the most effective way in uh, combating sepsis. And this is a slide showing John Snow, who was an anesthetist uh, in England um, in the 1800s. And um, the story starts, this is one of the elegant uh, examples of epidemiology and prevention in that there was a cholera outbreak that occurred in London. It occurred along, uh, mostly around Broad Street. And this was an area where, the, as you can see in the picture, the pumps, the water was pumped from the Thames and um, uh, the individuals were collecting water for home usage from these areas. John Snow realized that many of the cases occurred clustered around a few of these pumps and he 
try to raise the specter that um, the water um, was the cause of this outbreak. And if we stopped using the water, then the outbreak would cease. No one would listen, so he removed the pump handles, and then the outbreak sort of, um, ceased. So it is a very powerful example of prevention. Now, this is another um, issue of uh, prevention. Um, uh, we uh, did the study in Brazil looking at uh, about 14 years of um, bacterial sepsis uh, admitted to hospitals in Brazil. And one can see in the top graph that the hospital admissions decrease from about 65,000 to less than 20,000 20, over the time period. And during this time period, several things had occurred. There were immunization programs, sanitation programs, trash collection, water treatment, and a national nutritional program that caused the admissions to decrease. However, if one looks at the bottom graph, which I'll come back to, one can see that the in-house mortality is unchanged. So therefore, the message from here is that prevention works. Uh, immunization, sanitation, etc., works. And in fact, if we do not concentrate on prevention, we are denying two centuries of precedence in sepsis management. So we can do better in prevention. Um, and in different parts of the world, the issues will be different. Uh, in fact, in many cases, we hear there's an issue of uh, uh, water, contaminated water, that is an issue that is causing regional outbreaks. Now, this is um, a photograph of uh, a lady, her shirt, I met in the um, townships in South Africa. And one can see she got it right. As you can see, the people's health movement, to be healthy, we need plentiful clean water, good sanitation, nutritious food, decent housing. And at the bottom of it is well-staffed clinics and hospital and the right treatment at the right cost. And the fact is that this is the approach we have to take um, in the management of uh, sepsis also, uh, which I will come to a little um, later on. The other issue um, that we know, we know that in a child who comes with uh, sepsis, there are many interventions that can either prevent it or treat it acutely. Uh, for instance, if we think of the Millennium Developmental Goal number four, which is to reduce childhood mortality by two-thirds by 2015, many of what we need to do are available, but we have not been delivering it to children. In fact, the global coverage for these interventions are less than 50%. And if level one and then level two were universally available, in fact, about 63% of childhood deaths could be prevented. And these interventions are uh, for the simple, the common diseases one can see here. It will be clean delivery and breastfeeding, clean water and vaccines, antibiotics, anti-malarials, oral rehydration, vitamin A and zinc. And in fact, it was said about almost a decade ago that about 14,000 deaths a day can be prevented by these simple measures, but we have not really enacted it properly, or if we have done so, we have done so in a, in a very uh, sort of sporadic um, um, fashion in some areas. So maybe I can stop there again, and I'd like to get really um, the feedback again from individuals, and um, maybe a simple uh, yes or no, um, whether these interventions have been enacted in your area, Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And secondly, if they have not, what do you see as the major barriers or what do you see as the areas that need to be, uh, to be uh, uh, addressed? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. 
Now, when we talk about uh, sepsis interventions, there are many simple interventions that can make a difference. For instance, uh, neonatal sepsis interventions, one can see many of the death, neonatal deaths, occur in the first few days of life. Um, the vertical axis shows you the number of deaths and the horizontal axis, the age of death. And if you look at the simple interventions that can work, it's uh, the issue of clean deliveries, cord care, colostrum and exclusive breastfeeding early on in life, and then identifying the signs and symptoms of uh, severe infection, we know mostly it would be sepsis, having algorithms to treat the children and the uh, appropriate antibiotics or antimicrobials that are needed for those areas. So what I'm talking about is when we say about prevention, it is, um, not, it is not very expensive, but it requires thought to put the simple things in place such that we uh, prevent the downstream effects of um, infection. Now, secondly, I'd like to address the issue of uh, time-sensitive treatment. There is no doubt uh, severe sepsis needs to be treated aggressively and quickly because there are studies that have shown that the longer we wait for every hour in delay, the mortality rate increases um, substantially. So time-sensitive treatment is very important. If we look at this graph, um, one can see um, time at the, in horizontal axis. We have an insult, um, which is the um, invading organism or the, uh, causing sepsis. There is a sepsis inflammatory response syndrome, which is the body's response to the infection, which um, by its response may lead to organ injury, one can see. And then there's the counter anti-inflammatory response syndrome, the anti-inflammatory response um, uh, which is endogenously produced again, which tends to limit the um, inflammatory response and hence organ damage, and if successful, would lead to recovery. And the whole idea in treating sepsis, if we treat it early and uh, aggressively, we can limit the inflammatory response, limit organ damage, and hence speed up uh, recovery. Um, so there is very little time for deliberation, and in many cases, the outcome is poor, not because the uh, appropriate treatment was not given, but it was not given in a timely manner. So many of you may know the, um, the stepwise management of, of um, children with sepsis, the American College of uh, Critical Care Medicine guidelines. The bottom line is that these guidelines were made to, uh, for both uh, resource-limited and resource-poor areas. And if we use these guidelines appropriately and do the initial steps, one can save over 90% of children if we deliver antibiotics, fluids, oxygen, and close monitoring early on. So therefore, when we talk about later on in these guidelines where we have um, to go into um, um, more aggressive support with catecholamine resistant shock and um, uh, invasive monitoring and invasive ve uh, uh, complex ventilation and ECMO, this is not available in many parts of the world. So therefore, the aggressive early management is what is important in, uh, in all cases. The question is, are we delivering what works um, ac across the world? And again, this is a question that um, you can answer in your area. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And from my experience in various parts of the world, some are delivered in a, a very um, good sort of bundles in some areas. In some areas, it is not delivered appropriately. So when we uh, try to answer this question, if we look at decreasing mortality in pediatric septic shock, one can see that 
from 1963, when the mortality was almost 100%, the mortalities on the vertical axis and the years on the horizontal, one can see in 1985 with intensive care, it was down to 60%. And with aggressive early fluid resuscitation and monitoring, there are niche areas in the world where meningococcus, malaria, or dengue, the mortality is very low, less than 5% or even zero in some cases. Now this gives rise to hope and optimism that uh, we can decrease mortality from pediatric septic shock in many areas. But again, these are niche areas. And what we need to do is take the message from this and see how we can translate it and upscale it into a broader um, sort of um, broader areas. But when we look at even in the best systems in the world, we find that we are still providing inadequate care in the patient with sepsis. And this is a, an observational study from England, which has a very good um, uh, ICU systems with pre-ICU care and pre-ICU transports. And one can see in this study uh, of 200 children admitted to an ICU with a diagnosis of sepsis, the American College uh, Critical Care Medicine guidelines was not followed in 62% of cases. And the odds ratio for death, um, if shock was present still in the ICU, uh, when the patient was admitted was almost four times higher than others. So inadequate fluid and inotropic support in the first crucial hours is a very important um, and has not been um, uh, given um, uh, very uh, well in many areas in the world. So many of us have guidelines and we have used different guidelines, the American College guidelines. And I know that many of you have crafted guidelines um, for sepsis in various areas. So what I'd like to do is stop here again and um, sort of um, ask you the question, do you have guidelines that you follow for sepsis? Um, and simply yes or no. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And then is this a homegrown guideline? Is this a national guideline or American College guideline that I just mentioned? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And as a follow-up question, and what I'd like to know is that, uh, can you give us an idea, uh, percentage-wise, uh, how often the guideline is followed? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And, um, and whether you are, second question is whether you are satisfied with the implementation of your guideline and, uh, and the adoption of your guideline. Again, yes or no. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Um, what I'd like to do now is give, show you there are guidelines in India, France, Spain, Germany, United States, and Australia. But when you look at the uh, adoption of these guidelines, it is very low. And what I'd like is an answer. Can you tell me, um, I'll give you, is it 25%, is it 50%, is it 75%, is it 30%? Um, maybe if you can give me an idea of where, uh, what do you, th how the adoption level of these guidelines. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Well, what they are, compliance with guidelines is anywhere between 10 to 45 percent. So we have crafted guidelines across the world, but we have not really adopted them or uh, make them live and breathe in documents such that uh, they are used properly. Now. The good news with guidelines is that if guidelines are used, they do alter outcome. For instance, this is a study uh, through the World Federation that we did, and uh, many of you uh, 
uh, provided some of the data and patients for this. And what we found that compliance with the resuscitation and management bundle for sepsis were low, as you can see, for resuscitation bundle was 25 uh, to 50% and management bundle was 10 to 25%. But compliance with the resuscitation or management bundle uh, resulted in substantial decrease in mortality. So the odds ratio for death was substantially lower, which shows that guidelines work if they are used, but in many cases they are not used. This is um, another uh, uh, study from Germany showing us the issue of the perception reality gap. Uh, what it is, uh, the, the German SEPNET, there was 187 ICUs in which they asked the question uh, to the medical directors of these units, were you following low tidal volume and glycemic control among other factors? You can see low tidal volume, 80% said yes, glycemic control, 65% said yes. But the reality was 17% followed low tidal volume and only 6% uh, had glycemic control. So there is this marked perception reality gap. And um, the authors uh, gave the um, reasons for that as um, there's a, a failure of a cohesive team and system to really take the guidelines and put it into practice. And I think that um, this slide shows you some of the issues we face, that guidelines are easy uh, to craft. We can craft guidelines, protocol, work instructions based on best practice. This is only one third of the job that we need to do. The second third of the job is providing the appropriate training, putting a checklist strategies, and making sure that the individuals who will be enacting the guidelines have the tools and support and the resources to implement the guideline. A lot in this area has to do with changing the culture of individuals who may not believe, who may believe that guidelines restrict their practices, um, etc. Third part of it is evaluating whether the guidelines truly make a difference and monitoring the outcomes. And based on these, uh, having the feedback loops to either change your protocol or guidelines, change your support strategies and education. And finally, as new knowledge uh, comes to the fore, is really um, uh, new technologies, is really um, uh, changing your guidelines again. So this is a, a sort of framework that needs to be done if we would like to see guidelines implemented properly and guidelines making a major difference. Now, issues, the, the next topic is issues in resource limited settings. And these are issues really of systems. And I'd like people to think of that and think of your own uh, area uh, where you work. What are the, the diff different issues? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Now, some of the issues may seem very daunting, but I think that with um, appropriate uh, thought to the process, many a time, simple solutions can be brought to the fore. I am not denying the fact that in many cases there need to be more resources, there need to be finances to uh, get um, equipment, get supplies, etc. But I think that um, the first major step is identifying what the issues are is in your area. Now, we speak about the developing world, but the fact is that the developing world, it's too broad a term. Because if you look at these pictures, you can see the bottom right, there would be Cape Town, South Africa, which would be, you can provide contemporary um, care, contemporary critical care as we would in any westernized country. The top uh, right-hand corner is in Malawi, where it would be different. And you can see in many parts of the world, you will have contemporary care or modern care um, but in slums where uh, care is um, uh, very uh, suboptimal. So even in one country you can have 
marked differences within a few miles of each other. And hence the issue of developing world, I think it's too broad a term. And we have to talk about resource uh, um, dense and resource limited areas. And uh, also the mere fact that they are adjacent to each other, I think if we have the will, we, there is the potential to help those with less resources and really create systems that um, are, are more sort of cohesive and would be um, better for children's outcome. Also, the issues in many parts of the world are different. Uh, there are many different vulnerable populations. For instance, malnutrition may be a major problem in some areas. Um, uh, the post-operative child with nosocomial infections can be a problem. The issue of close approximation between human beings and animals in some parts of the world, in Asia and Africa, um, will give rise to zoonoses. And some diseases like schistosomiasis may be uh, endemic in certain parts of the world, malaria in other parts of the world. So again, what I'd like to do is stop here and uh, um, I'd like people again to think of what, is, uh, what are the vulnerable populations in your area Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. I think the developed world, we see bacterial sepsis with malnutrition. While acute malnutrition and intensive care may be a problem, it is not a major problem. We do not see zoonoses. But um, I think that uh, thinking through the diseases of what are the vulnerable populations in your area may also frame the discussion as to what needs to be done. There are also diseases or uh, uh, patients who are prone to sepsis that we do not see in the developed world. For instance, uh, we do not see many crocodile bites, snakes, spiders, and burns. But in many cases, these are diseases that are very common in less resource areas. Now, so when we talk about uh, the issues in the, in the uh, developing world or in resource limited areas, we have to think in terms of the issue of getting a child from home to definitive care and from whom uh, recognition of the illness may be an issue, which will be done by the parent uh, or the caregivers or village health workers. Uh, the child may then be sent to a district clinic in which there's a, a medical um, assistant or a nurse with a few years training. A district hospital may be a general practitioner nurse and then in the regional hospital or the tertiary hospitals where you may find pediatricians or pediatric surgery. Assessment and treatment priorities uh, vary depending on where you are in the spectrum and early on you can see it may be uh, 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 the village health worker may be able to give some uh, anti-malarials, antibiotics and as we go up the line then uh, there's the issue of laboratory tests, testing for hypoglycemia, giving oxygen and um, uh, doing simple surgery um, and only ventilation may be in the tertiary care centers. But all this has to be in a platform of what exactly we are going to use, the method we're using, uh, to really triage these patients and get them to definitive care. And the emergency triage assessment and uh, treatment uh, protocols developed by the WHO, the ETAT protocols, um, uh, are very useful and uh, should be used in many part for pattern, re pattern recognition. We also need to strengthen transport system and communications system if we are going to make a difference because uh, many a time by the time the child reaches definitive care in a regional tertiary hospital, the outcome is already um, grim because we have waited too long. So when we look at the barriers people face, there's barriers of transport. Many people will walk miles uh, to get their children to care. And in many cases, as you can see in the le upper left column of uh, bicycle ambulance, this may take a month's salary. 
um, and many people cannot afford it. So even when they go to their care, for instance, walk to a district clinic, uh, they may be faced with someone who does not have the skills to recognize and treat sepsis. The medications they have are very limited or maybe non-existent. And also the method of triaging children who are critically ill is not available. And this is not, uh, this is, um, uh, seems to be universal in many resource poor areas. For instance, um, this is from Bangladesh where uh, bicycles may, be may bring sick children to the hospital, or even when the children arrive to the hospital, they are competing um, and sitting in lines with adults, such that even those who are critically ill uh, are not triaged very early on. And in fact, the experience have shown that even with minimal resources, if the children are identified early on and triaged properly, as has been uh, reported by um, uh, Dr. Molno and the group in Malawi, one can see a marked um, a decrease in mortality. So um, the issue of triage is very important. And I think that um, I'd like to stop there and ask um, you to think about it. Do you have triage protocols in your emergency department? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And secondly, uh, do you think triage protocols uh, would improve care in your department if you don't have them? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Or do you think that protocols uh, that you have can be improved? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Um, secondly, now even when children arrive to definitive care, many time resources are limited and one can see that much of the resuscitation equipment here are, um, are very uh, sort of um, uh, rudimentary equipment. In other words, um, much, much of these uh, all have been donated and have been used by different individuals, although they uh, usually tend to be single use only. One can see that um, uh, there are two ways of delivering oxygen, uh, oxygen cylinders or um, uh, delivering oxygen via um, a uh, compressor. And uh, cylinders re um, uh, rely on uh, uh, reliable transport and it's very difficult in many places to get the cylinders in time, whereas in other areas uh, with com compressors, it requires reliable electricity, which could be a problem also. And as one can see in this picture, um, the issue of um, the cylinder, one, one uh, cylinder, go, the tube goes to a humidifier, and from the humidifier, there are about seven needles that goes to seven individuals, which may not uh, provide sufficient oxygen. In addition, it has been shown that approximately 30% of children may get oxygen if it's available who don't need it, and another 25 or 30% who needs it may not get it. So it's useful to have a um, pulse oximeter, even for intermittent monitoring, and this is not available in many areas. Much of the equipment, for instance, weigh scales and uh, laboratory equipment uh, also um, are rudimentary. Um, the, the lab stocks are also da down. Another major problem in uh, much of the developing world is the issue of nosocomial infections because of marked crowding, as one can see, uh, crowding in lower right-hand corner emergency departments or um, the lower left on the wards, children's ward, or the upper right where mothers who have had cesarean sections and their children are housed in an open area with very little ability to wash their hands or practice um, sanitary conditions. And it is one of the issues that needs uh, to be addressed. So 
sepsis care in summary in resource poor is uh, there's delay in seeking medical attention for many a time a lack of education and awareness of danger signs uh, cultural pressures to seek traditional care may be an issue distance from healthcare facilities communication um, which is suboptimal prohibitive transport costs and poorly trained health staff or as um, I'd like to summarize it in many cases it's just plain poverty for instance, this is one child who I saw who was severe malaria with um, a hemoglobin of, as you can see, 4.4, but um, did not get transfused and because the hospital had no blood and the parents had um, could not afford to go to the afford the transportation to another hospital, and this child simply stayed there and uh, and died from um, severe malaria. Another one. This is um, a mother uh, was given this. Um, having walked to a clinic was with, without transport was given this note of a child was uh, gasping and bradycardic and uh, told to find transport to go to another hospital approximately 20 minutes away waited on a husband to arrive with a car and a child died cold and asystolic so when we look at PICU deaths from sepsis one can see it is high in many parts of the world in China Mexico Africa South Africa India and the point is that what we need for these children are not um, uh, more PICU care, but we need to go upstream and provide care, such recognize sepsis early and start treatment early, because many a time, by the time they reach the definitive care, the outcome is already dismal. And for instance, when we think about ICUs, uh, the way we think about ICUs in the developed world with very sophisticated equipment, um, system sophisticated ventilation, ECMO monitoring systems, in many parts of the world, what an ICU is, is an area in which you can monitor children a little more closely. Sometimes children are monitored by the families themselves, or you may have some oxygen. And even when you have ventilation equipment, it has you have to be able to um, uh, sort of modify these equipment for monitoring and fix these equipment because many a time they break down and there is no support, for instance, by a medical engineer or anything else. So for, if you look at the lower right corner, you can see a child severely ill with malaria and um, there's blood, there's anti-malarials, antibiotics, glucose, um, all hung, but this is supposed to be the intensive care area and the only person who's available with the child is the mother. So um, this is one example I'd like to give to you and many of you I'm sure have seen it in your areas. A child who was previously well one month old uh, poorly feeding, breathing fast, seen at a hospital and has an arrest, intubated and resuscitated. And one might think that everything was done for this child who was hypothermic and um, hypoxic. Well, when we look at the sequence of events, uh, the mom brought the child in at approximately 8 a.m. in the morning. And you can see a series of um, uh, events occurring. The child tr was triaged approximately five hours later, started to turn blue another uh, three hours later, seen by the physician um, another uh, four or five hours later. The bottom line is that it took this child 16 and a half hours to get to definitive care. And hence, while this child got a definitive care and contemporary care, as one would any part of the world, the outcome was poor, mainly because of the, the, the deliveries. So. What I'd like to do is summarize here the issue of um, sepsis um, treatment in many parts of the world that is uh, hampered by resource limitations, equipment, personal and finances, cultural barriers, collaborators and local customs may play a part in it, and medical issues, for instance, etiology and immune suppression may play a part. So I'd like to stop here also and uh, 
uh, give individuals an idea to um, see if you agree these are the major issues in your area. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. And also, whether there are other factors that may help, may, may um, be hinder, hinder your provision of um, care for the sepsis uh, patient. Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer. Now, the fact is that different areas in the world have different resources, but I think that even in very limited resources, you can provide some care, some appropriate care for those who are septic. For instance, this is a, an example of what has been done by my colleagues in India. And you can see from the left, the resources that are available uh, from at the top of the graph is uh, advanced care that would be provided in any contemporary ICU. At the bottom, resources would be oxygen, IV line, and some antibiotics, and a doctor or nurse. So the level of care that can be provided, feasible management steps, and feasible monitoring are all graded and provided depending on resources that are available. So if you take every one of these uh, levels horizontally, you can see, for instance, at level one, a primary health center, you can give oxygen via mass, give some uh, intravenous access, give um, some antibiotics and monitor the patient closely. And one can see, if you look at the top, the level three academic centers and large corporate hospitals, you can do uh, anything from vasoactive drugs, complex monitoring, complex ventilation, and um, have the support of intensivists. So at every level you can do um, the appropriate care for patients. I think to make a difference in sepsis, what we need to do is recognize sepsis as a multifaceted problem. It's a clinical problem, a social problem, political problem, and an economic problem. And I will in my next lecture speak a little bit more of those issues. Finally, I'd like to talk a little about preventing recurrences of sepsis. And uh, this is an area I think that we need to spend some time thinking about. Now, there are many uh, studies, while they have not really specifically looked at recurrence of sepsis, if we look at these studies in Kenya, we find that um, in uh, one, in one um, study, 23% of children die, 10% in hospital rest following eight weeks of discharge. Similar in Tanzania, where mortality, post-discharge mortality was higher than hospital mortality. Malawi, uh, Guinea-Bissau, similar sort of thing. And one study in North America from Washington State looked at uh, over 7,000 cases of children with sepsis and showed that early mortality is about 7%, late mortality is 6.5, and readmission is 47%. The point is that with sepsis, while we think of it as an episodic thing, there are consequences post-discharge. And what we need to do, especially in resource-limited environments, is to identify the group of children who are likely to be prone to, um, to higher risk of readmission or mortality, and hence um, follow these children up um, more closely. So I think that uh, the fact is that uh, one can see that in every area we have made some inroads, but the fact is that there's a lot more that need to be done. So in conclusion, what I'd like to say is that uh, there are many opportunities to help with the treatment of these children with sepsis, but there are no easy answers. The ravages of sepsis in childhood is real. Much of it has to do with poverty and resource limitation in many areas. And we need to be innovative. And one of the issues we need is partnerships, money, and the use of liberation or disruptive technology um, wisely. I think that um, this is 
really the core message of this talk is that, yes, it is a dawning problem. I think that we, in any one area, do not fully understand the problem, but we need individuals in various areas to think through the issues as I've outlined them. And also the issue of putting together ideas. I think partnerships will um, be very useful and being innovative. But many of the things is that if we are going to develop partnerships, there has to be cultural sensitivity. There cannot be parachuting of ideas from one area to the other. And in fact, one of my messages that because those um, individuals or individuals or colleagues live in resource poor environment does not mean they are poor in ideas. So the whole issue of this framing this talk is to really uh, get your ideas out as to what are the uh, burdens in your area and then having identified the burdens, having identified the barriers, then we can talk more about um, uh, how we can part partner and how we can come to solutions. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.